We're talking about hope. Hope. We, we're in such short supply. In fact, I came across the statistic this week that I almost didn't believe. Uh, it was put out by the CDC, so you can make your joke there, all right? But it, it just floored me. The CDC this week came out with this, with this statement that 25.5% of all Americans from the age of 18 to 24 have, in the last 30 days, seriously considered suicide. In that next age group up, 25 to 44, it dropped but only to 16%. We have a huge crisis, and I would say epidemic in our country, and it's a lack of hope. And by the way, if you're here, you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, please make sure you come and talk to me afterwards. But what I want to tell you is, is that hope is not just an emotion. It's not just a wishful thinking. Hope is that reality that we have in our heart that there are better things to come. And I want to suggest to you that the greatest place to find that hope is in the person of Jesus Christ. Because you find in him a person who loves you, who died for you, who has promised to give you life, who has promised to give you a better day, who has promised to give you eternal life. And that's where it begins. The greatest thing I can tell you is that there is hope in Jesus. But I saw that statistic and I couldn't help but think of that. Remember that quote that I shared with you last week from Howard Hendricks? The discouragement is the anesthetic that the devil uses right before he reaches in and carves out your heart, which was suicide. And so we're going to talk about hope. So we, with that in mind, what we're going to do today, to next week, and the following, these three final weeks in August, we're going to talk about six different ways for you to be able to build hope. Because hope is just like faith. You know, you start with faith, but you need to grow your faith. You start with love, but you need to grow your love. Well, you start with hope when you meet Jesus, you need to grow it. You need to exercise it. So today we're going to talk about these two. Number one is recharge. We're going to be in 1 Kings 19. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with us there. The second one is we're going to talk about raise and it's the idea of raising expectations. We're going to be in Nehemiah. But let's start 1 Kings chapter 19. Because here's the thing, folks. If you're going to keep hope, what you've got to do is you have got to learn to recharge your batteries. When you let yourself run on empty, when you get so squeezed that you've given everything you've got to give and you are running on empty, you, you become like that... Uh, that proverbial sponge has had every last drop of water squeezed out of it. you got nothing left to give. You are in that dangerous point of losing hope. In fact, last week we looked at Elijah, the great prophet. I mean, the great prophet Elijah, just called fire down from heaven. And yet you get in chapter 19, verse 4, and I guess that's not suicide. He wasn't wanting to kill himself, but he was wanting God to kill him, right? He laid down under a juniper tree, and he requested for himself that he might die. 
And he said, is it enough now, O Lord? Take my life, for I'm not better than my father. How did he get there? How could this great prophet of God get to this point of despairing of life? Well, I think if you go back, what you'll begin to see is he had been under incredible pressure. Three and a half years. Starts back in 1 Kings chapter 17. He began to pray that it wouldn't rain, that drought would come, that there would be a famine, so that people's hearts would be turned back to God. Because of that, he had to run. Because people now were trying to find him and kill him, so he had to move over to the east side of the Jordan and the land of Gilead. Eventually, he had to go up to, to Sidon, which is north of Israel. Then he had to take on Ahab, the people of Israel, the 450 prophets of Baal, that's chapter 18. Remember, they get up there, and the God that answers by fire is going to be the God. He lets them go first. Nothing happens. But now Elijah himself has to rebuild the altar of God. A lot of work. He's got to set the, get the firewood, cut it, put it on. He's got to get the sacrifice. He's got to do that. Then remember, they even dug a trench around this because they're going to pour water on it because he's going to prove that God's God. Then he prays, fire falls from heaven. Then they, they kill all the prophets of, of Baal. Then he goes to prayer. And this is not just one simple little prayer. Seven times he goes back and agonizes with God. God, let it rain now. Let it rain now. Let it rain now. Finally, now rain comes. And did you pick up the last verse of chapter 18? Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. And he girded up his loins and he outran Ahab to Jezreel. Now, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, they're going to take you to Mount Carmel. Cool place. You look west from Mount Carmel, you see the Mediterranean Sea. You look east from Mount Carmel, you're looking over the Jezreel Valley, also known as the, the uh, Valley of Megiddo, where the final thing's going to be fought, right? Jezreel was not at the bottom of the mountain. It was all the way across. So, I mean, this is like a marathon. He runs. And now you get to chapter 19, and he's running for his life. I think what happened with Elijah is he ran on empty. I think that he was so emotionally, spiritually, and now physically run out. He had nothing left. Reminds me of my dear friend, dear friend, Gary. He had been my roommate for three years in college. And once he graduated from Moody, he felt like God was calling him to go back to his hometown and plant a church. What a cool story, right? He lived just south of Kansas City, so he went back. And you asked Michael, man, planting a church is hard work. And he didn't have a church helping him. He was just out there on his own. So he's knocking on doors. It started with just his family, but God bless him. This church grew to a couple hundred. And then from there, they were saving up their money, and God allowed them to buy this piece of land, one of coolest places to put a church I've ever seen right along the freeway and then they saved up and they were able to buy the building and the church kept growing and they got up close to 500 people he'd been there 17 years but the last year or two he was getting there he was running on fumes he was uh, he was running out of gas and here's the thing folks can I just tell you about this uh like if you're in an airplane and it runs out of gas you, you don't you don't drop out of the sky you don't crash right away you've got altitude and you've got thrust you're going to glide now you are going to meet the ground but it doesn't happen in that moment 
And so he, in fact, he told me once kind of the final straw. He, he just, his soul was so dry. He was at a birthday party of one of his church members. And uh, the young, uh, it was a young teenage boy, and they brought the cake out, and they sang, and, you know, blew out the candles. And the, the dad looked at him and said, listen, pastor, I'm sure you've got a word for my son. And he said, Steve, I had nothing. In fact, I w- so had nothing, I couldn't even make something up. And it was over. By the way, the dad got mad instead of having compassion, which is a whole other story. Quit. 17 years. Folk, discouragement often comes masked as burned out. So let me ask you, are you burned out? Do you feel burned out in your relationship at home? Do you feel burned out in your family? Do you feel burned out at work? Very well could be what you're dealing with is you're just dealing with discouragement. You've lost hope. And and what you got to do is you got to learn to recharge your batteries and to do the things that fuel you and to stay away from the things that tend to empty you. Because all of us have those things in our life that drain us of energy. They drain us of life. They drain us of, of these things. And, and if you don't know what they are, then you're really in a dangerous place because you don't know what to stay away from. So let me suggest a few, but you need to learn what are the things that depletes my energy and learn to, to build boundaries around those. Number one would be unhealthy, unkind people. I probably should have started with emotionally unhealthy. But you know, you know who I'm talking about, right? I mean, I was ready. How could I describe emotionally unhealthy people? The first word that came to my mind that's in my notes is whiny. Whiny people. Um, People that um, it's just, it's, it's never enough. Drama fills their life. They're needy. They suck you dry. I mean, do you all not have those people in your life? I mean, we all do, right? If you don't, come see me. I got more than my fair share. I'll share some of them with you, right? We all have them in our life. And, and so what are you you're saying? Well, Steve, what am I supposed to do? Am I just supposed to ignore them? You know, build, don't ever talk to them? No. I mean, Jesus had them in his life, right? We saw that. Well, what do you do? Well, you minister to them, you love them, but you set boundaries and you don't let them suck you dry. You have to set up these boundaries of, hey, I can do this and I can do this, but I can't go beyond that. Very important. Second thing that a lot of times leads us to depleted energy is an unhealthy schedule. We're just going here, there, and yonder. We don't know which way, you know, especially families with kids and sports. And, you, you know, you just don't know which way and you're going, which way, what direction you're happening. It's just everything. And five, six years ago in, in leadership circles, the, the, the word was balance. You've got to have balance in your life. Balance, man. If you could find balance, there were seminars on balance. Here's the problem with trying to find balance in your schedule Balance is like a unicorn. He can't be found. And when you do find him, by the time you get up close to him, he's gone. 
because things go through seasons in our life and it's n- life is never the same. So I like to think of the two words of focus and presence. Focus and presence. And that is all of our lives have rhythms to us. You know, and so you have to understand there are certain times when, when jobs are going to take more time. There's times that family's got to take more time. There's times that relationships got to make more time. And so you set up your schedule and, and you begin to understand that. Like August, September in church world for 25 years is a busy time right? It's where I've got to give more focus to the church because all the fall things are starting and, you know, and and all that type of thing. But it also means in July, it's when I can give more focus to my family. I can give more focus to these other things. And then the second piece of that is then presence. I mean, the whole idea is when you're at work, be at work. When you're home, be at home. Be present. You know, our problem is we're at work, we're thinking about the family, we're at family, we're thinking about work, we're in a relationship, and guess what we're doing? We're looking at our dumb phone. Remember back in the day when we all go to restaurants? You remember that? And you'd be sitting there eating, and you'd be looking around, and here's a table of four, table of six, and every single one of them's looking at their phone, right? They're not present. They're, they're doing other things. And what you got to do is that's not healthy. You, you, you need to understand, I've got to give time to my family. So when I'm with my family, man, I'm with my family. I'm at work. I've got to give time to work. I'm going to be work. I'm in relationship. That's what we got to do. The third thing is what I would call unhealthy, unnecessary guilt. What's unnecessary guilt? Unnecessary guilt is when we're living a life that we shouldn't be living. You want to talk about a rob you of hope? Cause you to be discouraged when you're living a double life? It, it'll kill you. You're saying one thing. You're, you're saying that, hey, this is what I believe, and you're putting this out. But, you know, in your life, you're, you're living a different way. There's no integrity there. It will, it will rob you of everything. You need to repent and now start to live transparently. I, I would say unhealthy guilt is the guilt that comes from outside. You know, people put it upon us that they expect more of us. In fact, it kind of ties into the next one, which is unhealthy expectations that people put on us. And, and, and often from that outside, you know, maybe it's, a, maybe it's a family member who thinks we ought to be doing more of this, or, or this person that thinks I need to be doing this, and this person over here. And, and the problem is they don't really get a vote, right? But at least uh, those unhealthy expectations, i got to be honest with you, a lot of times unhealthy expectations come from the inside, though. I'm going to be super dad. I am going to be super bapa, right? And you laugh, but we do. I'm going to be, I'm going to do it all. What Nobody can do it all. I, to be completely transparent, I've struggled with this because honestly, I would like to be the super pastor. I'd like everybody walks out, man, he's just such a great pastor. And then people come up and tell me their stories about what, you know, the pastor in their life that meant so much. And I'm thinking, man, I don't do that. You know, and you start heaping that on. But the truth is, I'm not that guy. He's not me. And we lift up these expectations and it will rob us of our hope. 
And then lastly is unhealthy exposure. You know, for those of us with a little tread on our tires, <clears throat> we remember when computers first came out, right? Do you remember that big, it was said all the time, garbage in, garbage out. You don't put good data in, you're not going to get it. And for those of you young, Google it. It's there, right? Sad thing today, you know why so many people are losing hope, is they're letting all kinds of bad exposure into their mind. I do mean to step on toes. There are some of you that are spending way too much time watching the news channel on cable television. Just conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory after the world's dying here, dying there. You're on your, your Facebook groups and, and this and it's this and it's that. And man, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket. And, and I tell you, these videos, oh my goodness, I think, don't know there's a day that goes past that somebody sends me one on Messenger. You gotta see this before they take it down. What they're gonna think? 3,000 videos are gonna be taken down from what's in my Messenger thing. You gotta, you just, you know, it's just only gonna take like two hours of your life to watch this, but it's so. And, 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 and to be honest with you, I have not watched one ever. I will never watch one. So if you don't want to send me anymore, that's okay. But there's a couple reasons. Number one, if the conspiracy is that good that they can even get it taken down, what am I going to do about it, right? I actually happen to live with my own conspiracy theory. I do. My conspiracy theory is that though I don't understand it all, Jesus is Lord, and he's kind of in control behind all this. And I may not see how it's going to play out, but one day I'm going to look back and I'm going, oh, that was cool. He was at work. I didn't see it. That's my conspiracy theory, and I'm hanging with it. Second reason I don't watch cons those videos is that's the best way to get a virus on your computer. <laughs> They're loaded with it. But man, you, 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 you fill your mind with that and that's all you think about and you're going to be worried, you're going to be upset, you're going to have stomach problems, you're going to lose hope because that's how they get you to watch the video. And then there's others of you, yeah, you're not there, but you're on the Instagram life. Oh, see, Instagram, it's not conspiracy theories. It's life through a filter. It looks good. It's the cutest that that has ever been, the best-looking wedding dress. It's, it's whatever it is. And you start looking at that and thinking, man, my life stinks. Truth is, their life is not so hot. It's just through a filter on Instagram. you got to watch your exposure. You remember what Paul said in Philippians? Those things that are true, those things that are honorable, those things that are right, that are pure, that are lovely, that are of good repute, the things that have excellence and virtue, you think on those things. Watch your exposure. The other thing, oh my goodness, you know, this has gotten longer every time I've preached it, but man. All right, I got to keep going. You also got to figure out what fuels you. We're going to talk a lot of, these are some of the things that are coming, but let me mention a few. The first thing that ought to fuel you, and if this doesn't fuel you, you've got a problem, and that is your relationship with Jesus. 
I mean, that's what happens with Elijah. So again, if you could read the rest of the book, you know that Elijah actually gets reinfused. He goes back, he has really good days as a prophet. Why? Because he got it alone with God. That relationship was established. And if you've not experienced that, that time of just getting away with God, talking to him, I tell you, it will bring peace. It will fuel you. Secondly, how about finding personal growth opportunities? Not to bring any shame, not wanting to do that, but could I ask you, when's the last time you read a book? A book about how maybe to become a better Christian, how to follow Christ better, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a better parent. There's some great resources out there. Invest. What's the last time you maybe took some training or something you were interested in and thought, man, I could get better at that? Find those opportunities. You need to nurture healthy relationships. The people that, that speak into you. I, for me, I love meeting with other pastors. I love the opportunity to hear their story, hear their journey, hear what God's been doing. Just had lunch yesterday with two pastors. Uh, Tuesday, I had a, with one of my favorites over in the East Valley. Don't get to see him very much. I always walk away from those things energized. Then you've got to play to your strengths, and we'll spend a lot of time on this. But the truth is, when you and I can do what God has gifted us to do and put it in our heart, it will energize us. Now, it doesn't mean it does not fatiguing. I mean, you may not know this, but I love to preach. All right? This is what I enjoy doing. This energizes me to be able to take God's word and, and to be able to present it. It doesn't mean when I'm done and this now being the fourth one, I'm not going to be tired. I am going to be tired. I'm going to take a nap. But internally, I'm fueled. When you play to your strengths of what God made you, it will, it will uh, bring you energy. It will bring you life. It will lift your hope. Lastly, develop healthy hobbies. And if I could make two real quick comments. Number one, TV's not a hobby. But that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with TV. I went home last night, watched the Diamondbacks, great game. You know, you need to veg every once in a while. There's no problem with that. A hobby is something that you can put some energy in and you get a lot of energy back out. Doesn't take a lot of time. But what is it that can just let you forget and, and just renew you in your heart? What is that thing? For me, quite honestly, because I don't golf, that wears, I'm, I'm worn out by the third hole. I, I don't fish, I don't hunt. So for me, honestly, my hobby is I work with our association, I work with our pastors. That's what fuels me. I love it. Find that. The second thing we need to talk about here is we've got to raise expectations. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Do you remember Henry Ford's really well-known quote, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. It's true. So if you're sitting there going, man, my marriage is lousy and it's just never going to get better, guess what? You're right. If you think, hey, I'm stuck in this job and I'm never going to be able to, to really get something that fulfills me, you're right. And that's what loss of hope does. And what I want to encourage you is what God wants to do is to raise your expectations from the what is to what can be. Ray Johnston in his book, Hope Quotient, says this, where there is no faith in the future, there's no power in the present. That is so good. And so what you got is you got Nehemiah in this book refusing to accept the status quo. So you got to have a little history if you don't know this. 92 years. We got anybody here 92 or older? 
No, okay, so none of us can quite, quite get our arms around this. 92 years before this chapter, Cyrus, the king of the Persians, had allowed the Jews to go back and to rebuild the temple in the city of Jerusalem. The, of course, the Babylonians had destroyed it all, and they'd also destroyed the wall. It was torn down, the gates were burned. In 92 years, they were not able to get the wall rebuilt. They didn't have the energy for it. They kind of came like the people who live in a run-down house, and they just didn't see it anymore. And so you get to Nehemiah chapter 1, and his brother, Nehemiah's brother and a couple others come back, and you pick it up in verse 3, and it says, The remnant there in the providence who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. You see, Nehemiah was not willing to accept the status quo. He wasn't willing to just say, oh, the walls are torn down. That's just how it's going to be. What he saw was God could do something about that. If God let him go back and build the temple, why not the walls? In fact, you pick it up there in verse 5. He says, I beseech you, O Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant of loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. See, what he did was he had a vision. He had this idea. In fact, the whole idea started to fast and pray. It wasn't just mourning. It was, hey, I've got an idea. We can go and we can rebuild those walls. His expectations were raised. By the way, let me give you the cut to the chase scene. He shows up 52 days. They rebuild the walls and set the gates. 92 years, nothing. 52 days by the power of God and his deliverance. And they all worked hard. The gates are rebuilt. How do you raise your expectations? Well, number one, you take God at his word. You take God at his word. Just like you, you know, we're, we're talking about exercising hope. You got to exercise faith. In fact, if you look down in verse 8, he basically prays God's word back to him. He says, remember the word which you spoke to your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of heaven, I will gather them there and will bring them to that place where I've chosen to cause my name to dwell. Basically, he prayed scripture back to God. He took the law of Moses. Moses, you said we'd be scattered. You were right. But you also said if we turn back and we prayed, you would rebuild. God, do that. So take God at his word. So let me ask you, does God want you to have a tolerable marriage? Or does God want you to have a marriage that reflects the bond that's between him and the church? Why don't you ask him for that? And as a husband, Lord, i got to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'm not doing that, obviously, or we wouldn't have this terrible marriage. So God, you need to help me. And as a wife, I, I'm supposed to be here to support my husband and, and be alongside of him and be able to, to be able to bring this peace that you want in, in, in bringing the, not only the respect, but the chasteness and all of that that God says in his word. God, I need your help. You don't think he'll answer that prayer? Man, our kids are just kind of wandering aimlessly. I want them to follow after you. You think God doesn't want to answer that prayer? If 
James 1.5 says, if we lack wisdom, let her ask of God. You ask God for wisdom on how to raise your kids, you don't think he'll give it to you? He will. Take God at his word. Secondly, you've got to process the what is, but you also got to dream about the what could be. You know, every once in a while, I run into the dreamers who are just living in, you know, la-la land. There's no reality to their thought. They're just about what could be, you know, if I won the, you know, won the lottery. Or, you know, an aunt or uncle who I don't even know dies and leaves me $2 million. And, you know, that's, that's they live in that place. It's never going to happen. You've got to be able to process the what is. Nehemiah gets there to the city, and he goes out at night to see exactly the condition of the walls. There was no surprise. He knew how bad it was. But that only helped him form his plan about how he was going to get to the what should be. You process the what is, but then you start dreaming. What could be? What could my marriage look like? What could my career look like? How, how can I bring about what I believe God has called me to do? Number three is then you've got to replace fear with faith. Because fear goes, ah, you can't do it. You're not strong enough. You don't have the ability. You're too weak. We've got a lot of people living with fear right now. thinking of uh, David and Goliath, right? Goliath, the nine-foot-six guy, he shows up. Everybody says, he's too big. There's nobody could defeat him. Anybody goes down there is going to get their head handed to them, literally. David goes, well, you know, I think God has an interest here. And I think maybe with God, the whole point is he's too big to miss. Completely different expectation, right? God's going to get the victory. I don't know how it's going to happen. But I believe that God doesn't want him defying, defying him and his people. And he went. Replace fear with faith. What does God call upon your heart? What, what is that thing you want to believe him for? And, and finally, the piece is that we've tried to stress from beginning to end is our hope is built in Jesus. It's not us trying to pick ourselves up by our own bootstraps, but it's that we know him. He's at work in our life. He is powerful. He is awesome. He cares. He's got a plan for you. You know, if you, you weren't in his plan anymore, he'd take you home. But you're here. He wants to use you. He wants you to live on mission. He wants you to have hope because he's got great things that he wants to accomplish.